dozens of wildfires raging out of control in the West. Gosh, we've had, what, three, four fires around here uh, in the last month, and it's kind of getting scary. Two million people under red flag warnings across five states, California, Idaho, Montana, Washington, and Oregon. The bootleg fire is the first official mega fire of 2021. It's burned more than 200,000 acres, doubling in size for four straight days. Now, nearly seven times the size of San Francisco. And drought conditions in 94% of the West are making it all worse. It has never been this low. It really, truly is unprecedented. Lake Mead, only a third full, is lower than it's been since the 1930s. It's one of several depleted reservoirs across the Southwest. Climate change has a very strong fingerprint on exactly what we're seeing right now at Lake Mead. In the past decade, dangerous weather events have become more frequent and more extreme due to the climate crisis. Both the public and elected officials are only beginning to take the situation seriously. And there's one population in the U.S. facing some of the worst climate threats who almost nobody is talking about, incarcerated people. At that time that I was in the heat, it was a horrible experience. For one year, I sit there just dying. What pays me the most is like his life could be taken by a fire that he can't escape from. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another edition of the 805 Uncensored Podcast, where we discuss politics, history, music, spirituality, and more. And this is episode number 52. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, welcome and thank you so much. Tonight on the show, I have the great fortune of speaking with Desmond, the host of the Independent Thought Podcast. Hey, I appreciate you having me on the podcast tonight. Um, My first time being here. uh, No, my second time being here. My first time as a solo guest. Right. And so I'm excited about that. And yeah, also looking forward to having you on mine and that's just the future. So yeah, it's going to be dope. I've listened to a lot of your stuff and you have fire content, I got to say. Oh, thank you. So first things first, before we dive into the main topic of the episode, can you tell my listeners a little bit more about yourself, your politics and your podcast? Yeah. So uh, independent thought uh, basically kind of just like sprouted up from just me and a friend for the most part, just like watching the news on a day in and day out basis. This kind of went on for for years. We would always have conversations about it. And we kind of just got into the mindset that we should like just create a podcast, which eventually became my podcast because he wasn't as interested once we kind of really got into things. And I think what I try to focus on for the most part is trying to put a scope onto issues that I feel like aren't being covered that well or aren't being covered at all. I'm definitely left leaning. I've never really given myself a, a true title. I don't know that I believe in them. And I also don't know exactly where to put myself. I know that I find myself on the left of basically most issues, if not all of them. Uh, but I've never gone through the sense of labeling myself. Uh, that's actually what kind of played into calling the podcast independent thought, uh, not independent in the sense of like centrism, but independent in the sense that I did not feel connected to any label or to any party. I kind of felt I was independent from having to pick where I was on the political scale, I guess, more or less. But if you go like issue by issue with me, I find myself being pro most things that, you know, Bernie Sanders would talk about. 
Yeah, right on. I think that's pretty awesome. So tonight on the podcast, we've got a pr- couple of pretty heavy topics. We're going to yep. be discussing mass incarceration and its relationship to climate change. So, you know, at first glance, some people might think at first, like, what the hell do these two things have to do with each other? But if you kind of put your thinking cap on and you take some extra time, it becomes quickly apparent, like the link between these two. And we're going to dive a lot into that. I've also got a scholarly article that I'm going to be referencing quite often in here. So I'll be sure to link that into the description and talk all about that as soon as I get to it. So Desmond... I wanted to ask you first, what are some of the major climatic changes that you've witnessed personally in Montana over the years? I know that's where you're located. Uh, you know, it's gotten a lot warmer here. And I don't, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, the data would back that up, but just from lived experience, it's gotten dramatically warmer in Montana since I've lived here. I've lived here since the year 2005. And when I first moved here, it was very common for there to be multiple weeks on end in the winter time where it would get um, below zero for weeks on end. And when I moved here to Missoula, where I'm at currently, you know, it's definitely a warmer part of Montana uh, than where I lived at when I first got here, which is uh, Great Falls, Montana. Uh, it definitely was a warmer area being on the other side of the of the um, of the Great Div- or of the the Continental Divide, excuse me. But it's also gotten warmer here too. Like, in fact, just the last couple of years, it almost barely gets below zero at all. And I'm sure for someone who doesn't live in the north, you're probably like, oh my God, like doesn't get below zero. But you know, when you live out here, that that's kind of like one of the things that you get accustomed to. And it just doesn't really happen that often anymore. The amount of snowfall that we get has dropped dramatically. Getting blizzards was a normal thing in this state when I first got here. And they've like lessened year over year. And yeah, the amount of precipitation just seems to drop every year, which has a big impact for us in the summertime as well, because the snow cap that we would have on the mountains would then like run off during this time of the year and in the summertime, you know, and that would lead to usually less fires, which mm-hmm. now because we don't have the the snow buildup that we have been seeing drier seasons, more drought, uh, more wildfires, and it has been relentless the last honestly the last like five six years now we've been having just smoke filled summers uh 2017 for instance we had a summer that was so like smoky that you legitimately couldn't see like a you know more than they made like a hundred feet in front of you i mean the whole town looked like a scene out of like day after tomorrow or you know like the dawn of the dead like the sky was orange around here which i'm sure that people in san francisco could probably relate to from a couple years ago yeah it's like blade runner 2049 in 2020 yeah so it's um it's been a stark change it's been a stark change i know that other people have you know mentioned you know i don't live up on the the blackfeet reservation but uh you know a couple hours north of here they will also have been telling me about how um you know some of the the berries up there just no longer grow anymore that used to grow just only like a few years ago so we're seeing like changes in vegetation as well just certain um just native plants that can no longer seem to thrive in the same areas that they were thriving in just a a decade ago so yeah the like without having like a table of data in front of me i can just tell you just from lived experience that the change is 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 definitely noticeable just to the everyday person there's no way to escape it yeah i've seen a lot of major changes obviously in southern california dealt with a lot of the same wildfire issues um 
I've also noticed the last few years, the wind speeds have increased. So we have more days with wind than we ever had before. Like we always had Santa Ana's, but now like year round, we have these 20, 30 mile an hour wind days. And then on some days too, it's like 85, 90 degrees. So mm. any little spark causes a fire. And we've dealt with a lot of those. <clears throat> and then um, obviously just much less rain. And I've noticed a lot of um, precipitation whiplash, climate whiplash. So that means we have periods of extreme drought. And then like the snap of a finger, we have flooding. Mm. Very quick, sudden changes between extreme conditions. And that's right. only intensified over the years. And if you look at the the data, it looks like that's only going to increase as time goes on in California. We're um, also, I'm in, I'm in the Southwestern United States. We're, we're dealing with something that's called a mega drought right now. A mega yeah, drought. Them. Yeah. A mega drought, uh, according to dictionary.com is a drought that lasts two or more decades. So we've been tracking this since 2000 Lake Mead in particular. Have you heard about Lake Mead? I haven't. No. Okay. So it's a reservoir um, like outside of Las Vegas in Nevada. And that's where, uh, Las Vegas gets a lot of their water from, and I think some other major southwestern cities do as well. Might have to fact check me on that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. Anyways, <clears throat> there's a noticeable bath ring <laughs> where the water level used to be and now where it is now. And it's just right. gone down and down and down <clears throat> over the years. And what scientists have found is this current mega drought that's taking place in the southwestern United States. It's actually the driest 22 period in the region since at least the year 800. And the years um, 2002 and 2021, they found were drier than any other years in nearly 300 years and were respect respectively the 11th and 12th driest years between 800 and 2021. It's, it's absolutely remarkable, you know, and it's a shame that we constantly have to run into you know, those who want to find different ways to kind of deny that something is happening. But unfortunately, that's one of the one of the factors that we're dealing with right now is that there are some people who view this as a political issue, which I guess, you know, we also run into when you think about the pandemic, it was like, you know, people just want to make this, you know, about politics versus, you know, actually like interpreting what data we have in front of us. And that's it's it's unfortunately exacerbating this issue more than it should. You know, yeah, there shouldn't absolutely. be so much contention about just being able to see it right in front of us what's happening. It's really alarming um, where I live in Southern California. I think just in the last 100 years, the temperature here has increased by over three and a half degrees. And that yeah. doesn't sound like a lot to some people, but when you're talking about the average temperature, that makes a big difference. You know, one two, three, every degree dries out the vegetation more and more and more. <clears throat> no, absolutely. And, and I think just going back again, like, I mean, even if the average temperature wasn't affecting an individual and being like, oh, well, that doesn't bother me, so on and so forth. Well, when it accumulates into these massive like weather events, when I first got to Montana, I spent the years of like 2005 to 2011 or maybe even 2012, having, if there were fires in the state, I did not notice them. 
Like it was like, I was like, oh, I, I would maybe I would hear about a fire and then I'm like, oh, okay. But it, it wasn't something that ever really like felt newsworthy. But kind of around 2012, when we first started seeing like fires becoming, I guess, stronger and and more consistent. Yeah. Like here in Missoula, where I live at right now, there was wildfire smoke in the city visibly every single day from like the middle of July to the end of September. It never lifted. It never went away. Like it was, we breathed it in every single day. And I lived up on top of a hill. So I had to like, so I could like almost like drive into it every single day. And it's more more or less been like that every year since then. And like, I, I it does affect everything in one way, shape or another. So the, the fact that so many people can turn a blind eye to and act like it's not a big deal, it just, it, it really makes me wonder how someone could be that detached. Yeah, I think I, I read um, a statistic recently that said, the smoke emissions from wildfires over the last 20 years have been more concentrated for greenhouse gases in the atmosphere than car emissions have. Yes, I, I actually I read that as well. And it, it makes sense. It, it really does. I mean, when yep. you have all of these acres burning, I mean, when you have a fire, when you're in a backyard, you know, and you're just like, you know, having like your own little like personalized, you know, uh, fire, mm -hmm. like you can tell that like after a while that smoke kind of blowing in your face is a lot. Well, like here we have entire forests that are on fire and they'll like range for miles. I mean, last year in 2021, the state of Montana had almost a million acres burn. It's insanity. You know, I mean, and that's just in one year. I mean, and we've been having this, like, again, this is happening year over year over year. I mean, these forests aren't growing back fast enough. And no, on top the of the fire fact intensity that like- intensity too. Like we've always had yeah. wildfires in the West. It's the intensity of the fires that's so much different. And the, just the amount of them. Yeah, the you amount know, of so much so that like, Yeah, the, the amount of, you know, firefighters that we have, they can't contain them. And then they grow even larger and, you know, and- yeah, it's it's becoming it's becoming unsustainable, you know, and here in the state that I live in, you know, we rank the highest in the nation for the number of properties who are at risk of wildfires. Wow. So it's just it's, it's not just affecting like people's, you know, ability to breathe. It's affecting like your life, like your home, like where mm -hmm. you, you know, so I mean, it's it's dangerous all around. We really do need more people to kind of wake up to the realities that are going on with climate change in this country and the world, honestly. Yeah, did you read that uh, back in 2020, San Francisco actually had its first rain-free February since the Civil War? I did not hear that, no. I had to read that article like three times to verify that. That's incredible. And if, yeah. if, if you know anything about California and the West in general, we, we get the vast majority of our precipitation in the winter. Mm. Particularly January, February, and March for California. And so for San Francisco, a Northern California city, to not record a single drop of rain in February, it's it's unheard of. Yeah, I I I didn't know that about California about Northern California. I uh but it, it, it tracks with what we're seeing over here. You know, like Montana, we're not that far away from California, I guess in the grand scheme of things, even though it is like a thousand miles from here. But you know, the the weather I think that we are experiencing here is not that much different than what's experiencing over there. And a lot of times, not only you know, do we have that kind of like that shared, uh, that shared, you know, correlation, but 
wildfire smoke from California will come up here every year, every year. Like we know when fires are burning in California because we usually have to deal with that too. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a relentless, you know, thing that you have to deal with right now. It's because in the summertime we have the sea breeze. And so the winds blow from West to East. And so they go straight towards you guys. Yeah, it, it's fun times. You know, we get the we get the smoke from California, uh, the wildfires, and I mean they're they're everywhere. I mean Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Idaho essentially blowing yep. in from you know from uh, British Columbia and Alberta. Um, so yeah, they hit us from every angle. Um, so yeah, yeah I uh, yeah something definitely needs to be done. What did you make of that that Pacific Northwest heat wave? You know, the one I'm talking uh, about where it hit like, a yeah, yeah. Portland saw triple digits. They had some like roads starting to crack last year. Yeah. 116 um, in Portland. Yeah. And in, in Portland, you know, I, I've actually personally never been over to Oregon. So I wasn't aware that they didn't hit triple digits. You know, we hit triple digits here in Montana in the summertime. We have, mm-hmm. we have extreme weather here, but that's, yep. that's like nothing, that's nothing new. Um, but yeah, hearing about that for Portland um, and then seeing that they're normally like, they don't break like eighties in the, mm-hmm. in the summertime over there in Portland. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's just another, another case in a long list of cases, right? I, I think was it Washington DC was it a year or two ago was getting wildfire smoke from California. Like I don't, I, don't, I know personally from living in the East coast that never once happened when I was a kid. Like, yeah. Never I heard once. DC and New York city. Right. I grew up right outside of Philadelphia. Um, I've n- I never saw that once as a child. We had we had re- we had regular pollution there, you know, <laughs> from the yeah. from the plants and stuff. Yeah, and it was you know in that it was from that general area. It wasn't from three thousand miles away. No, no, definitely not, definitely not. Um, yeah, actually, you know, this is really hard to believe, Desmond, but it's true. So the record-setting California drought that took place from twenty eleven to twenty seventeen has actually been less intense than the current drought from 2020 to present. Right. So we're seeing these major events just basically just like compound onto each other. And so as bad as one effect is when you have both of them combined back to back, we're just, we're, we're seeing, you know, ecological disaster. I mean, and the trickle down effect that's going to have, I mean, not just, you know, with, uh basically how it's affecting human beings but also how it's affecting you know the animals of this of these areas how it affects the vegetation i mean there's so many different ripple effects that can be that can essentially come from these disasters yeah something that i was thinking about um back in 2020 and still now because the pandemic's still going is there was this sign that i saw it was for like a wildfire evacuation zone and then it also said wear a mask so it just like compounded this message inside your brain like wow we're dealing with two simultaneous crises at once you know we're dealing with a public health crisis with the pandemic and then we're also dealing with a climate crisis all at the same time and just seeing um the evacuation zone right there and then seeing pictures where people need to wear a mask like that really stood with me so basically what i'm getting at is since we're still dealing with COVID, which is a respiratory virus, smoke inhalation from these wildfires is a major issue. Right. And if you if you crunch the numbers and look at the the data, a lot of the deaths in the Western United States um, from COVID took place right after these fires. 
in September, October, you know? Right. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I mean, it is, you know, from what we understood about COVID, um, I mean, it attacks your immune system. Mm -hmm. And if you're breathing in wildfire smoke on top of your body, having to combat this virus, that's trying to infect it, especially around the time of the year, you know, like when, you know, during the seasonal change, that's when, you know, typically people end up getting sick anyway, because your immune system drops from just the, just the natural, like a reaction to the seasonal change. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a, like the perfect storm of your body being, you know, a little just too vulnerable to handle all of those things at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like outside of the Western United States, right. We're also seeing stronger hurricanes in the Gulf. Um, scientists are saying in 2022 this year, that we're supposed to have another above average hurricane season, like similarly yeah. to 2020. And they think they said that um, six storms are expected to impact the United States. Yeah. And, and that's just another product of the warming of the warming weather, you know, as because like we've we've known for a long time, you know, even if you don't you know, be a meteorologist, they give you this basic information is that the stronger storms come from the warmer water. Yep. So as temperatures rise, water temperatures rise, intensity of hurricanes. Yeah, and then you also have sea level rise, which impacts the storm surge that comes you from know, the hurricanes. That's where the vast majority of the deaths come from. Yeah, I mean, some of these cities, you know, down in the Gulf, you know, they weren't ready for for this change. I mean, I I know it's not as simple as packing up and moving, but man, I I, I would get out of there. I mean, truthfully speaking, you know, if I had if you have the the means, you know, I think. It might be it might be time to leave that part of the if country. If you have the ability to leave, yeah, I, yeah. I've if read you about, have the ability to, I've read about some of these um, towns on the east coast that only have like two, three hundred people left because the sea has pretty much swallowed them. You really sympathize with people, right? Especially people that have been here for generations. It's it's horrible that these people have to leave their home, especially for something that's largely not their fault at all. You know. No, you know, it, it, it's really is too bad because you know that there's certain climate disasters that happen that are that just happen. Like, I mean, like in the sense that like there really isn't a whole lot that can be done about it. I think like tornadoes in the Midwest, for instance, they just pop up. Yeah. You know, like there's not really a whole lot that can be done to to get out of the way of them or to prevent them. Mm -hmm. But we, we know that these storms, you know, with the hurt with hurricanes in particular are being strengthened from climate change. So our our inaction is making these things worse. Not saying that, you know, if we, we reversed, you know, carbon emissions that hurricanes would go away, but they wouldn't be as devastating as they are right now. Right. It wouldn't hurt. No. <clears throat> yeah. Regarding the Midwest, they're actually dealing with a little bit of climatic whiplash as well. They go through really extreme drought conditions and then extreme wet conditions. Um, back in 2020, uh, there are huge swaths of the Midwest farmland that were destroyed uh, in this storm these powerful storms called derechos, derechos. <clears throat> it's a Spanish word for straight wind. Basically, you have these really intense windstorms that come through. They also have hurricane forest winds behind them, torrential rains, thunderstorms, and it can even spawn tornadoes. And so back in 2020, there was one um, that impacted Iowa. And if you guys are listening to this podcast when it posts, look this up. Look up the Cedar Rapids Dara Show 2020. It will blow your mind, the level of damage from the storm. And what I'm getting at is when I've, when I've examined the science with these storms, scientists have found that there's definitely a link between these extreme weather events and climate change. 
And so as we continue to pump greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, storm like, storms like these, which are relatively infrequent now, are going to become not only more frequent, but much more intense. And so like what we're already seeing is is pretty scary considering that it's only expected to get worse. So I wanted to get to the article now, which is <clears throat> about connecting the dots between mass incarceration, health inequity, and climate change. <clears throat> so this is, um, I guess I should start by saying that <clears throat> Black, brown, and indigenous communities face the brunt of the climate crisis and at the same time are disproportionately incarcerated. So this article written by Seth J. Prince, is an assist, he's an assistant professor of epidemiology and sociomedical science at Columbia. Uh, <clears throat> he, he talks about um, intersectionality here and the connection between mass incarceration and climate change and the public health crisis regarding lack of access to health care. So the article begins by pointing out that prison abolitionists and public health advocates have long made uh, analogous arguments when they describe the fundamental causes of mass incarceration and health disparities as systems of extraction, exploitation, domination, racism, and heteropatriarchy. But mass incarceration, health inequity, and the climate emergency are all intertwined in more than an analogy and in ways that no single field can address on its own. So first of all, I guess, what do you think about that, Desmond? Do you agree with that take? I mean, I think it's an obvious thing. You know, there is, we talk about who ends up being the most incarcerated. It, it, it's a pretty straightforward line. You know, like when you, when you talk about who ends up being in these prisons the most, it is the people who are in the most poverty because they're the most easily, I guess, like, they're the most easily manipulated into this system. And when you think about who's in the most poverty, you think about people who are not white, because those are the people who normally dominate these areas that are in the most poverty, uh, especially when you talk about in the inner cities. I know that people will scream that there's plenty of poverty in places like Appalachia and, and rural parts of America. That's also true. But, you know, like disproportionately speaking, you know, it is it's undeniably urban areas in this country, the major cities. So it's it's basically a vicious cycle right like you have minorities living in these areas and they have terrible like education systems they have terrible lack of you know access for food as far as food deserts are concerned you have people who have terrible health care and people who grow up believing that they just don't really have a shot and, and so like sometimes you know that will just lead to run-ins with law enforcement and they become easy targets i saw this quite a bit growing up in the East Coast, I would see I had friends who were in and out of like juvenile detention facilities in and out of correctional facilities, um, being put in for the most ridiculous reasons, getting out, being put on probation, having to have, you know, these ridiculously like, like stringent things put around them that if they violated any one thing that can get put right back in, they lose another couple of years of their life. And and then you basically have people who grow up in the system. And so when they come out, that's all they know. Mm -hmm. You know, it is, it's absolutely insane just how the system itself breeds this cycle of exploitation. And there's a huge money racket being made by it. You know, like the police are funded by a lot of this. The courts are funded by a lot of this. The prisons are funded by a lot of this. 
you know, it's, and then you have also, you know, probably, I'm not sure if this is actually a good thing for them or not, but you have also like social workers who are funded by this because they're constantly in contact with these people, especially when we're talking about children. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the interconnectedness of all of these things is, is extreme. And so there is, there's, when I, when I think about our current justice system, it feels as though it is constructed in large part to be a business which is why you see things like mandatory minimums, uh, extensive cash bail, uh, just this, you know, school to prison pipeline that we see it, it, it's obvious, you know, like what is designed to do and it absolutely needs, I, I don't, I don't know what exactly it needs, but it needs a lot more attention than it's currently getting. And it definitely needs for people to wake up to the, to basically the destruction that it causes on so many communities in this country. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. And, and we're going to definitely get to some of the major solutions that we think could be implemented to solve some of these issues because they're definitely there. Just being yeah. a lot of it's largely ignored, unfortunately. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the text goes on to discuss the social relations of racial capitalism. And he says, quote, most incarcerated people come from a handful of neighborhoods, which is what you were getting at, primarily communities of color in major U.S. cities, yet most new prisons are actually built in rural hinterlands. Both sets of spaces have experienced tremendous divestment over decades of deindustrialization, uh, deregulation, and economic austerity. The result is, quote, organized abandonment, end quote, where poor communities of color with few jobs and crumbling transit and housing and poor rural landscapes ecologically and economically devastated first exploited and then abandoned by industry. After that, police flood the former with arrest quotas and the quality of life ordinances, while prison boosters descend on the latter where they promise jobs via new correctional facilities on former farmland or industrial properties. And at each end of the prison industrial complex, fragile communities and delicate ecologies bear the brunt of an expanded carceral infrastructure rather than investment, regeneration, and cultivation which is exactly what you're talking about with the school to prison pipeline, for example. <clears throat> um, regarding the direct connection between the climate crisis and mass incarceration, Prinz lays out the extractive and deeply psychologically damaging forces that the state engages in to prop up the prison industrial complex. <clears throat> so the article states that the extractions involved in forcibly removing residents from their neighborhood, their neighborhoods to be warehoused in massive faraway high security institutions cause enormous injury to humans and habitats alike. These processes undermine the health and well-being of people of color, indigenous people and migrants, the same groups that are then targeted by the criminal justice system as the state's favorite mode of crisis abatement. These same groups will also bear the greatest burdens of climate change, which, how perfect, right? Yeah, no, it's... Uh... The people with the least amount of power always seem to have to deal with the most amount of harm, yeah. right? Like our system, you know, from top to bottom, you know, it says that, you know, like if you make it, which just means like if you end up becoming extremely wealthy, then you'll be taken care of. And if you don't, well, then, you know, you basically have to deal with the repercussions of all of the all, all of the effects of our system, right? You know, like, like when you extract as much as we do from this planet without replenishing, 
you know, we have this climate change, this climate crisis, and then, you know, the who has to deal with the brunt of that, the people with the least, yep. you know, it, it's always the people with the least who have to deal with the after effects of, of basically our system that is constantly trying to get the most out of everything and not caring about what comes out on the other side. <clears throat> yeah, I, I really agree with that. And, you know, one of the things too is climate change is often looked at as like a futuristic issue. This is something that we need to think about in the future, right? But something that needs to be drilled home is that we have climate refugees right now. And the people that are having to flee their homes are largely people that are extremely poor in the global south. People that had nothing to do with climate change whatsoever. Um, Regarding the climate crisis specifically as far as the United States goes, um, white people are much more likely to benefit from cooling greenery than people of color. And during during a summer 2019 heat wave, a New York utility intentionally cut power to a majority black neighborhood to avoid larger blackouts. At the same time, eco-gentrification is displacing lower-income residents of color with wealthier, typically um, white gentrifiers. And Prin goes on to say that this green affluence is misleading, even accounting for reductions in transportation or building energy emissions. Affluent residents use much less consumption um, by driving higher carbon footprints. Yeah. God, you know what? I, I'm seeing a lot of what you just said in the city that I live in right now. Yeah. Like I, I really am. Um, it, it feels as though like the efforts to quote unquote, like f- push towards sustainability here, they, they just, they feel a little misguided. This might be getting a little off topic here, but I'm, I'm going to try to kind of like bring this back in. You know, when, when it comes to talking about exploitation, for instance, you know, talking about these poor communities being affected by these things, right? Mm-hmm. Right now in this community, we are dealing with a housing crisis like most places are. And due to that fact, this city is building apartments out the wazoo. They're building apartments everywhere. It's apartments, 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 apartments. A few condos, a couple townhouses, almost no single family homes. Now, the idea is that you know, one of the ideas around this is like, you know, like a push for sustainability, right? Mm-hmm. And on one hand, you could probably champion that idea. You're like, all right, if we have so many of these single family homes, you're just gonna have a bunch of people just like sprawled out endlessly. It's probably not the best thing for the environment. On the other hand, when you look at it, when you're having people basically just being stacked up in all these different apartments, what is that really, you know, doing? If you're truly thinking about it, you're putting people basically into a market where almost their entire option when it comes to housing is a place that they have to rent mm-hmm. and they have to rent and they have to rent and they have to rent forever. You're a permanent renter in this community now. And as we know from other, from plenty of, you know, institutions that have studied this, there are numerous studies that show that the number one form of like wealth that you can generate for yourself in this country is through like home ownership yeah and that has now been stripped away from most of the people in this community that i lived in for the sake of sustainability and so now we have this like almost we're now creating this almost like permanent renter class uh where people are never going to be able to own their own home which i find to be incredibly ironic you know in a town that claims to be you know run by people who champion the idea of um 
of uh, housing being a human right. You know, <laughs> it seems a little inverted when you really think about it. Yeah, it's like you have a, you have the right to pay your landlord forever. So <laughs> it, it it just I worry sometimes that when we talk about sustainability, that it will end up being hacked by the same people who have caused the problem in the first place. Or just they'll yeah. just find another way to exploit people and to you know find a way to profit off of the pain that they already caused. And so I think it's very important to look at how these solutions end up coming up in the, in the sense of sustainability and when it comes to climate change, because you know the solution could also just create another problem in and of itself. Right. I think really what they're getting at here too is like the, um, the very obnoxious, egotistical, white liberal that thinks they're doing everything right for the environment. You know, so they'll just they'll just shit on somebody and say, "Oh, just get a Tesla, asshole." Then you won't have to worry about buying gas. It's like I yes. can't afford one. I would love one. Yes, because you know they're so cheap, and we yeah. all are just you know, we're all just you know rolling in money around here. Why that's, don't you that's just shop with Whole Foods? Stop going to Walmart. Yes, again, you know, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> To yeah. be able to do four hundred dollar grocery store runs whenever you want to. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, so I, I really see that as who they're the demographic that they're talking about here. Yeah, they're we're seeing some of that happening here, where it's um, you know, like they're they're changing the roads around here as well. Um, in a, in a sense where they're trying to um, well, I'll, I'll get to that at a different point. But anyway, it's uh. Some some of the moves that are being made, they just they seem to be very not, not well questionable. It seems to be misguided, mm. just in, in a way. It's like it's like you you're trying very hard to seem like you're doing the right thing, but not really like evaluating all the different repercussions that are going to come from it. Right. Yeah. So the article goes on to say that the rich benefit from luxurious adaptation and mitigation while everybody else faces deteriorating environmental and social conditions. Displaced poor and working class residents end up on the street, incarcerated or pushed further to the urban periphery. And if they do end up incarcerated, climate change directly threatens their health and safety. During Hurricane Katrina, those in the Orleans Parish prison were abandoned without power, food, water, or proper ventilation. And they were also found chest deep in water. During Hurricane Sandy, New York City didn't have a, an evacuation plan for Rikers Island, even though it was inside an evacuation zone. Carceral facilities, in addition, also caused direct environmental damage themselves. In Alabama in 2014, Donaldson Correctional Facility was found guilty of dumping over 800,000 gallons of sewage into nearby creeks. And then in Kentucky, this is a really positive thing. Uh, local anti-prison activists and environmental groups actually blocked a new federal prison on the grounds that it would contaminate local watersheds, pollute the air, and threaten endangered wildlife habitats, which included a rare old-growth forest. Yeah, we'll give them a clap. Definitely a good thing, especially given that part of the country where, you know, we're not too far removed from Cancer Alley. Right. <clears throat> Yeah, I don't know. That's fucking crazy, right? Like, no evacuation plan. You know, it's it only seems crazy given your own morality. You know, when I think unfortunately, 
we have this massive stigma still in the country that is like with prisoners with prisoners right and i i see it even amongst people who are liberal you know and and if people are liberal feel this way like we don't even need to pull the conservatives as far as i'm concerned um but yeah this this idea that you know if you're in jail your life basically has no value or it doesn't matter what happens to you i mean i i think john oliver tried going over something like that when he did his uh piece on prison heat Mm-hmm. When he would talk about just basically like, again, the rise of climate change and how it's becoming hotter outside, which means like more perilous conditions for people who are in some of these facilities across the country who have no air conditioning and are sitting in the in these blocks of cement just being baked every day. You know, because we tell ourselves that these that these facilities are about rehabilitation. I think we know that they're not. But, you know, we we claim that they are, mm-hmm. you know, it, you can't really rehabilitate someone that you're torturing. <laughs> Why are they more violent when they come out? It's so weird. It, yeah, it, it's a pretty big cause and effect. Right. And that's not even talking. That's not even like getting into the, the issues that do happen when they do get out, talking about their yeah. inabilities to get jobs afterwards, you right. know, having that on your record, uh, stringent parole, you know, Everything uh, restrictions associated with recidivism. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they've almost completely eliminated people's abilities to get any kind of, you know, education while they're incarcerated. So, I mean, like people aren't going out, you know, and, and leaving with the idea that they don't want to go back in. It's almost like a guarantee they would go back in. Well, I think only furthers the statement I made before about it being a system designed to, to generate money. Yeah. I mean, it was only until very recently where we were using prison labor in California to fight wildfires and we had to pass a law. Governor Newsom finally did it, thankfully. But for a while, we were having um, prison prisoners fight wildfires, right? And they would receive all the same training as firefighters that are not incarcerated. Yeah, but and they would get paid they, like what, like a dollar an hour? Yeah. And not only that, but since they had a prison record, even though they had all the proper training, the state wouldn't hire them as full-time firefighters. So we had to waste a bunch of money by hiring an entire new group of people instead of bringing people on that already had the qualifications. And so finally, Newsom passed a law where prisoners who receive all the training can now become firefighters. But that was only like in the last year. So for a very long time, that was a policy in place. It's amazing to me that even in the most liberal state of California, that certain things like that still are just like, you know, just like inching, you're just inching towards progress. And that would seem like the most like obvious step to take, but even in like an entirely blue state, like something like that took until 2021 to become a law. In California, we've built 23 prisons since 1980 and only two universities. Well, there's your stat of the day now, isn't it? <laughs> that says it all, doesn't it? It's a little bit. It's a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's um, you know, I, I think when I look at you know, I, you know, because I I know that I've heard you say this phrase before, and I've heard you know Erica say it now when I when we look at our capitalist hellscape, you know, it, it seems as though it's very obvious, you know, where, you know, where the I guess like the wealthy and the elite in this country want there to be concentrated forms of investment and where there will be no investments. Mm-hmm. And so there is definitely an intersectionality again between, 
you know, climate change and mass incarceration, because the people who find themselves to be mass incarceration are also places that don't have their investments. And when we talk about climate change, it is from a lack of investment there as well. So unfortunately, you know, what we're really up against when we talk about both of these things is an elite class of people in this country who just don't feel the need to invest into either one of these areas because they don't see any true value in helping the poor in this country or saving our environment. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think this is actually a perfect point right now to segment into where we can talk about some of the solutions and the um, fundamental causes, like the way that we can tackle them. <clears throat> so the article goes on to say that despite the grave urgency we face, which is what we're alluding at right now, this is also a moment of unprecedented opportunity. Virtually all of the most ambitious proposals to tackle the climate emergency implicate fundamental social um, determinants of health. These include massive public investments to decarbonize the economy by 2030, the creation of millions of new jobs to achieve decarbonization and address transition, targeted investments in environmental justice communities for decarbonization and adaption, and fully funded social services such as universal health care and housing. These exact same measures also could be the route to decarceration and the elimination of health disparities in the U.S. In the 90s, when mass incarceration was accelerating, one-third of men sent to prison were unemployed, and today the unemployment rate among formerly incarcerated people is 27%. Full employment based on the expansion of renewable energies, ecosystem restoration, expansion of social services, and major new public works can make a huge difference in the lives of people in or at risk for contact with the criminal justice system. Stable housing is a prerequisite for maintaining employment and enjoying decent physical and mental health. Yet people ensnared by the criminal justice system are systematically excluded from both private and public housing. Furthermore, they're at higher risk for numerous health problems that often require supportive housing, which can cost effectively reduce reincarceration rates. Feminism also ties heavily into this, right? We're talking about intersectionality. They found that feminist organizers make up the front lines of the prison abolition movement in which black women in particular lead the struggle for a new society as the struggle for decarcerated future. Similarly, around the world, women are already leading the fight against climate change, especially in the highest risk places. And according to the latest climate science modeling, feminist social health policies drive the deepest carbon emissions reductions and greater resiliency from extreme weather. I mean, I'm not surprised at all by that. Women are fucking badass. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I know that the few times that I've come across, you know, prison abolitionists, you know, um, whether online or in, or in my real life, you know, mostly all of them are women. Yeah. So it that that I guess that tracks with my anecdote. But yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And it is something that I'm still like, I'm still just learning about. I think my first interaction with this idea just came just last fall. Like, truth, truthfully speaking, I had never even heard of someone mention prison abolition just until I think just last summer, last fall ish. So, but I've uh, I, I've definitely seen a lot of value in in the conversation. But I guess to put my cards on the table, you know, when I when it comes to that subject in particular. There is a part of me that doesn't get completely on board with polit with you know prison like abolition. I, I think where I sit at currently, you know, just kind of like flesh out how I feel about it, is the amount of time that people are in jail is 
is excessive and needs to be reduced. And I also think the all the different reasons that we have people currently going to jail is excessive. It needs to be reduced. I would like to see less less crimes being punishable by jail time. I like to see people spending less time in jail. I would like to see people actually getting real rehabilitation who do deserve to go to jail. Uh, and I would I would reserve that for like really big crimes. Like when I think about you know like when I think about murder, when I think about you know like rape, those are the things that come to mind. Um, but again, you know, like I think there also needs to, you have to have that paired with, you know, just like better, uh, just a better system overall, one that's like less rampant with corruption mm -hmm. from top to bottom, including more of an investment in a lot of these areas where you constantly have people going into the prison system. You know, again, we're talking about these urban areas where people or mostly minorities live. You know, I think so many people fall into this system because of how exploited these, these areas of our country are. So it's not like a, it's not like a one area that you just focus on like, oh, okay, well, let's just reduce mandatory minimums or, oh, let's just, you know, like make sure that people are getting rehabilitated when they're in jail. I think you have to focus on about like 10, 15, 20 different points all at once to really address this entire issue. Uh, but with that being said, I don't know that I can come on board for police or for a prison abolition just yet because in my mind when i think of i i guess when i think of someone like derek chauvin for instance mm -hmm. and thinking about what he did to george floyd you know like there is no part of my brain that can resonate with the idea that that person shouldn't be in jail like it, it, i don't have it in me and so maybe someone can convince me down the line that i need to expand my ability to forgive but i don't have it currently and fair enough i'm a full-on anarchist and i have questions about pro prison abolition myself <clears throat> something really interesting to dive into and listeners check out um, ruth wilson gilmore too she is a prison abolitionist and an anarcho-feminist and you could find out a lot about that topic if you look up her name she's written a few books on the subject as well and also check out angela davis she is an activist Black woman has been on the forefront of all things leftism for decades. She has marched with Fidel Castro. She stood with the Black Panthers. Like you name it, she's been there. <clears throat> I think another major thing too, Desmond, that all of this is really circling around is the issue of defunding the police. Right? Like that's something that's only recently come to um, the mainstream, I guess I should say. Yeah, yeah, the last but couple of years. Investing in communities is what we're talking about here. Divesting from the police. I mean, in Los Angeles alone, I think the police budget here is like $1.7 billion. Wow. And in 2020 uh, alone, they the statistics just came out about this. We had over 2,000 homeless people die on the streets in Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, we have our own issue with uh, an un unhoused population up here in Missoula. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that Los Angeles has the biggest issue with this um, in the nation. And it sounds like it's been happening for a long time, from what I understand as well. But it's not, like a, it's not like a recent phenomenon there. No, it's just getting worse. <clears throat> for sure. Um, I think another important thing that we should talk about before we close this episode, do our plugs and all that is political courage and mobilization, right? 
Like we're not yeah. going to be able to solve any of these issues if people just feel constantly defeated and that they just are going to stand on the sidelines. People have to feel Very motivated. True. So how do you think that we go about that as leftists to bring people into activism that for the most part feel really down and defeated by these institutions, which are so good at just burying people and making them feel weak and powerless. Yeah. I, I, this is something that I'm running up against with my own like audience. And honestly, just again, putting cards on the table with myself, you know, this current administration, the Biden administration, you know, it has essentially, you know, and I don't, you know, I'm not going to say that it did this directly, but for, you know, directly, indirectly, it has completely taken the air out of everyone's sales uh, when it comes to political activism. Like when you measure, you know, the appetite for people wanting to be involved politically, you know, today versus a year ago versus a year before that versus the year before that, like even prior to the pandemic, yeah. 2019, 2018, 2017, mm -hmm. like it is, it is, I feel like I am in the year 2014 right now. Like that's what it feels like. It feels like we just like snapped back. And on one hand, it's understandable, right? You mm -hmm. know, like people are exhausted from dealing with with coronavirus. People are exhausted from dealing from having dealt with Trump for five years. You know, people are tired. So I get it. At the same time, you know, like these issues exacerbate when we're not paying attention to them because the fact of the matter is, is that our political system is completely corrupted by the people in this country who are profiting off of the current state of affairs in our country you know the current economy you know is completely you know like it is completely you know in design of the people who are you know billionaires and like multi multi-millionaires in this country they're thriving off the current system they have bought influence in every level of politics and without people staying engaged and demanding change the status quo will maintain it really will and so i can understand that you know like people can get frustrated especially when you see people like joe manchin and kirsten cinema blocking certain things you know like um on the federal level, but to get to the solution, I truly believe the solution is at the local level. Mm -hmm. it, it really is. It, in my own city, I have seen people get elected recently uh, who were progressive beating out establishment candidates, just like on my own like city council. And it honestly, it, it didn't take a massive effort. Like it, it really did. It just took like a few people organizing and getting together. I also think about what's happening in Rhode Island right now with their whole state like cooperative where basically the progressive movement in Rhode Island has basically almost completely thrown out all the establishment Democrats in the state of Rhode Island in their state legislature. Like this can happen on the local level. And, and I truly believe that we need more people to get involved in your more local politics. Here's like a story just in particular. Mm -hmm. There was, there is a, a wealthy, you know, a wealthier person moved here from, I believe from California, uh, went to go buy a development in our downtown area. He bought the, he bought the land for, I think for $10 million, planned on um, putting up a bunch of like, you know, like hotels, condos, um, 
retail space and so on and so forth the entire place was going to be valued around like 100 billion by the time he was done or i'm sorry 100 million by the time he was done with it um it caused a lot of controversy here in the city uh, after uh the person who did it in fact went on social media and happened to kind of flaunt you know the fact that he just like just moved here and just bought up a big piece of like our downtown area and was saying <laughs> some nasty things to certain like you know college students on social media mm -hmm. and it took only about 80 emails in a town where we have a population of like 120,000 it took 80 emails for the city council to revoke his uh like his right to build there Jeez. well they didn't like revoke it but they they've suspended it so not really sure where that leaves it right there but it was that little amount of engagement actually was able to was to actually stop this multimillionaire from being able to start building these luxury condos so that's the small amount of like engagement that it would take to do something in a local level i understand that some people live in bigger areas but there are plenty of people who live in towns that are like two hundred thousand and less around this country you know and you could probably do a lot of positive work in your own community if you just got a few people together and just made the effort, like I, it seems insurmountable, but I'm telling you in a lot of these local areas, it's really not like you can, you really can do it. Yeah. Well said, man. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that story. That's, that's beautiful. I really like that. Yeah. And you know, one thing that really kind of sticks with me too, that you've probably seen this meme. It's like, don't care about politics. Your boss does your landlord does. <laughs> You know, on one hand, I get it though. Like yeah, I do. Of I, I mean, like it's easy, right? I mean, it's because it's so defeating. Like, yeah. I mean, I go out to the training. bar sometimes to play pool. I, I was in a pool league for a little while, and sometimes we would get into conversations about politics. You know, like while we were just playing pool, and I think a lot of the people that I'd end up talking to during these times, they were the the politically, they were the people who are politically apathetic, the, the people who might not vote or the people who just didn't vote. And, and I think through multiple conversations with multiple different people, the one thing that was consistent was that these people felt like they had no power. Like they were all tired of things being a problem and they all saw the corruption for what it was, but they felt like they didn't have, they, like they couldn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Not that they didn't want to, they felt like they couldn't. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, flipping that switch in our minds uh, i think is is so important if anything is going to change because truthfully speaking we do have all of the power collectively individually no collectively yes yeah and, and if we if we can harness that together change can happen and it really doesn't have to be thousands of people to do it especially when you talk about again with your local politics yeah and i would i would agree I think that focusing on the federal level is a lost cause for the most part. The federal level will eventually bend if enough local municipalities and states come together. I mean, you don't have to look any further than that and looking at medical or not medical, but the legalization of marijuana mm -hmm. or even with, you know, the legalization of gay marriage just back in like what, 2013 or 2015. I mean, it was like, it was a state by yeah, so it was a state by state thing, yeah. and then eventually the federal government or the Supreme Court, rather, you know, stepped in and just made it, you know a nationwide thing. But you know, I think that is the model that needs to be addressed going forward. If we can't change things on the federal level, we'll make them bend to what's happening in the states. Yeah, and I'm actually glad that you brought up cannabis because there was one point that I wanted to make in this. Um, 
with regards to like restoring justice in black and brown and indigenous communities, you know, these communities have largely been incarcerated because of cannabis. Yes. Both possession and sale and all that. And if you look at the numbers, almost 80% of dispensaries that are currently in the United States are white owned. Yeah, that makes sense. Not saying it should, but no, it makes but sense. Yeah, that, that's that's a big that's a big problem. <laughs> yeah. That absolutely has to change. <clears throat> and so I just wanted to point that out. Um Desmond, Yeah, well that honestly, yeah. Unfortunately, that that conversation is actually much bigger than just the cannabis industry because it, it's the same thing that I remember being on a podcast last year mm-hmm. and we were talking about the fact that Michael Jordan was the only black like owner of a professional sports franchise. And the other two people who are on the podcast with me were like, oh, that needs to change. And I was like, well, yeah, but this, this is again, this is indicative of the problem that we have in America. Like in order to own a sports franchise, you have to be a billionaire. Mm-hmm. There are either six or seven black billionaires in our country. And, and so what we are talking about is that the wealth in our community is so like disproportionately low that there just aren't enough people who can even afford to do these things like buying a major sports franchise, you know, but then even coming back down to this, to the dispensary level, you know, it costs what hundreds of thousands, if not over a million to start one of these things I, I in a think, lot of these communities. Yeah. I think the latest numbers I saw were you needed at least a million dollars. Right. And so what this, what this story actually highlights is the fact that it's the racial wealth gap. Once again, it's the fact that there's so many black, brown, indigenous people who are not able to afford to open the dispensary because of the fact that they don't have the money to do it. Yeah. And so we could be like, yeah, well, that needs to change, but you're right. But it, it's deeper than that. It's like, we have to address why it is again, that there are so many people who look like me and other shades, you know, who are unable to prosper in this country. And it's, it can't be just as simple as, Oh, we don't, we're too lazy or we don't work hard enough. You know, <laughs> like it's a bunch of crap. It really is. Yeah. And so when we talk about, again, I think the word that's been used a lot today is intersectionality. You know, mm-hmm. like why is it that so many people of color keep finding themselves being exploited by a system and then later on can't even find a way to thrive in it. And, you know, we get to, have conservatives throw out the token example here, there, here, there, here, there as a way to disprove that. But, you know, statistics are statistics at the end of the day, which I think is, you know, something if I ever got a chance to talk to Ben Shapiro, I would probably just use his own phrase right back at him and just say that facts don't care about your feelings. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> uh, do you have anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Climate change can be can be addressed in a lot of different ways. I think this ties perfectly back in with political apathy. Climate change feels like such a massive conversation that I think that sometimes individuals can feel like they don't have the ability to do too much to affect it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, especially when you are struggling financially. Uh, we've spent a lot of time talking about the financial plights of people who are, you know, living in urban areas, but people are struggling everywhere. I mean, white people are struggling too. You know, middle classes getting smaller. What's considered to be middle class is shrinking. Uh, people are struggling all over the country, and I, I think there's a lot of people who might want to do things that are more eco-friendly, but feel like they can't for one reason or another. I know that I've talked to people specifically who say things like this, and, and I, I think 
sometimes even the smallest gesture can make all the difference. Yeah. You know, I think like, for instance, we started, we bought like seven reusable bags and I think they were like a dollar 50 a piece. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it kind of got annoying after a while, but getting into the habit of not using plastic bags anymore at the grocery store. I mean, that makes a big difference. Um, I have a little like bed of soil on my little porch where I will throw some food scraps onto there. So it's like a semi compost deal going on there. But basically the idea is that just knowing that, you know, food waste is one of the major contributors to methane, um, which, you know, again, massive greenhouse gas um, that is, you know, causing so much devastation in our, in our world right now. But, you know, it, there, there's just little things, you know, like not buying, like maybe getting a water bottle, just, you know, drinking more water, not buying so many dispensable uh, things like, you know, like, like that, you know, th there's just a bunch of different little ways that we can all make, make a difference that don't have to be super, you know, uh, super expensive. And so I think when people think about the climate crisis and maybe feeling powerless there, I'm sure that there are small ways, like cheap ways that we can make a dent in this. And if we all did these things collectively, you know, it'll make a difference. Like obviously the the pressure should be put most on these massive polluting corporations. And I'm not saying that they don't deserve most of the blame here, but I also think it's, you know, it's, it is pertinent and important that we all do what we can, even on the smallest level on top of asking these big corporations to change their ways as well. Yeah. I really like that. Um, you know, on the left, there's this phrase that we often use where there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. However, if you can consume ethically, you should, you know, which ties back to what we were talking about, where, you know, if you're if you have the means to move out of somewhere that's ravaged ecologically, you absolutely should. You know, that's not to say that everybody can. Of course, not everybody can. No. But if you are able to, you should. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, we can we can talk about what the system should look like. And I, and I feel like that's always what we should do but at the same time you have to also juxtapose that with where we are yeah and where we are prescriptive is in versus system. descriptive yeah we we are in this system and so it, it's very important to try to like make the most of the situation that we're currently in while also striving for change right desmond do you want to plug your podcast how can my listeners get in contact with you and what do you have going on in the future as far as your show goes Sure. Thank you again for having me on. Uh, the podcast is called Independent Thought. Uh, you can find it on Apple, Spotify, basically anywhere that you would look for a podcast. I listen to my podcast on CastBox. Why? Just don't ask. I just like CastBox. Um, <laughs> I also have some stuff on YouTube. Uh, you can mostly find me on social media on Instagram and Twitter, preferably Instagram. Uh, that's where I spend more of my time. And as far as what's coming up, you know, kind of a, a changing of the podcast a little bit is in store right now. So I um, typically how I've laid out the podcast in the past is we would have like a, an hour long episode where I would have uh, my main topic and then my guest and then just some like afterthoughts about the conversation. But now switching it up instead of having one long episode a week, I think I'm going to start doing three shorter episodes a week, which should be, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that you know, kind of like as people are, you know, kind of going back into quote unquote normal uh, and everyone has less time, 
you know, mm -hmm. I'm hoping that this shorter format will be more conducive for certain people. So, um, yeah, but we're not going to change the type of content that comes on the podcast. You're talking about whatever issues come up. You know, some of the things we talked about last season were geothermal energy, which I think more people really need to be looking at, especially when we're talking about climate change and some of the solutions that should be in the mix that are not currently in the mix. Um, we took some time to talk about what happened with the Boy Scouts of America and all of the people who were abused under that organization and how they've been able to basically skirt under the radar and no one really knows just how horrific they were for decades. And it boggles my mind that more people still don't know. And also um, our drone strike policy over in, the, over in the Middle East, because I think that enough people don't really have a grasp of just how truly devastating we have been over in those Middle Eastern countries for the last couple of decades. And I think more people need to be speaking up about, you know, what it means to actually, you know, uh, well, liberate countries. Yeah, absolutely. Listeners, definitely check out the Independent Thought Podcast. Desmond puts a lot of hard, hard effort and soul into each and every one of his episodes. He also has fantastic guests. And Independent Thought is definitely a sister podcast here. So please check them out. 805 Uncensored, as always, is on YouTube. We're at 805 Uncensored Podcast. Uh, we're on Instagram at 805 Uncensored Pod. Also on Twitter at 805 Uncensored. Thank you so much, Desmond, again, for being here. And I hope of you course. have a great one. Thank you.